Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and as you're opening your Bibles to Genesis 6, why don't you also open your Looking to Jesus worship guide to page 18, and you'll find some space there to take notes as we make our way through this passage this morning. I don't really know how uh, this series has impacted you so far, but I find myself here in uh, week three of a series that has about 48 sermons to go, and I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Just so overwhelmed by his grace and his love and his mercy upon us, his people. And we started this series a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 1, and we saw that all of God's creation reveals his infinite worth. And so you look at the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies and the mountains and the oceans and the rivers and the seas, and, and then you look at the reality that God has created every single one of us in his image, and, and the words of Psalm 19, verse 1, just ring absolutely true in our heads and in our hearts, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Last week, we turned to Genesis chapter 3, and we learned that the problem of my sin is solved by the promise of my Savior. To think that we all face the overwhelming problem of God's judgment against our sin, not because we were in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve all those years ago, but because the sinful nature of Adam lives within all of us, and the only solution to that problem is the promise of our Savior. So even in the midst of such bad news about our sin, we are comforted by such good news of the promise of the Savior who will come, not only to deliver us from our sin, but will convincingly defeat the enemy forever. Today, uh, we come to this passage in Genesis chapter 6, and if you're familiar at all with this section of your Bible, you know that this is about Noah and the ark. Now, I'm not sure exactly what comes to your mind when you first think about Noah and the ark. Maybe if you've spent a chunk of your childhood in the church, one of the first images that will come to your mind when you think about Noah and the ark is this, fun with flannel graph. And uh, if you're like me, you have great memories of that well-meaning Sunday school teacher pulling out that flannel graph board and with all of the animals and the big boat and some guy with a really concerned look on his face, like something big was about to happen, but nobody seemed to know what it was. And then everything turns out okay in the end. Some people hear about Noah and the ark and they think about this cute bedtime Bible story to tell their kids about a guy who built a boat and saved people from a worldwide flood and he's a hero and they love it so much that they've painted this soothing mural above their baby's crib and of Noah and the ark and they lullaby their little children to sleep at night by singing, there's going to be a floody, floody, so get those children out of the muddy, muddy, and as the song goes and... You laugh because that song's in your head now and you're going to be singing it all day. You're welcome. The problem is, this passage is about so much more than that. Lots of people think a lot of different things when we hear about Noah and the ark, but one thing this is not is a cute little story. This is not the best choice if you're looking for a story to soothe your children to sleep at night. To this point in creation, Genesis 6 through 9 is a story of unparalleled wickedness and tragedy, and so much so that God is about to unleash his unmistakable judgment against the sin of mankind on everything that he has made. And so I'm praying as we come to this passage this morning that 
we're actually going to see here in God's word exactly what God wants us to see, that, that we're going to learn the lessons today that God desires for us to learn because I fear that we have taken this story of Noah and the ark and we have romanticized this story so much that so much of modern day Christianity has completely forgotten the point of it. I fear that Noah has become little more than this cute little flannel graph cutout who gathered his family and a few animals and they all sailed lazily away off into the distance while God destroyed the earth with a flood. And in the process, we make Noah out to be the hero of the story. And there are certainly a number of heroic things that Noah did through the course of this story, not the least of which is his undeterred obedience to God. Never mind the fact that he built this massive boat without the use of modern technology that we have come to enjoy and appreciate today. But when you read this story, not only do you begin to notice that Noah never actually says a single word through the course of the entire narrative, but you begin to see that he is clearly under the direct command of God himself. I mean, in reality, God is the focal point of this story from start to finish, and Noah is only providing a foreshadow of the true hero of the story, which, as we're going to find out as we make our way through, is Jesus Christ himself. So with our Bibles open today, I want to help you see that even in the midst of our sin and the rampant wickedness that we see all around us, which is what Noah experienced in his day, that even in the midst of that, that God can redeem anyone and God can redeem anything by the power of his grace. I want you to see today that even in the midst of television and internet news cycles that are dominated by stories of war and rumors of war and nuclear war and natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, starvation, poverty, that in a world contaminated by murder and violence and adultery, immorality, racism, injustice, political corruption, deceit, animosity, outright hatred, that even in our own lives that are poisoned by personal sin, struggling marriages, prodigal kids, lust, anger, pride, bitterness, jealousy, addiction, or any countless numbers of other things that it could be, I want us to see today as we dive into this story, as we dive into this passage in God's word, that even in the midst of our own sin and the wickedness that we see around us every single day, that our God is the God of redeeming grace. Our God is the God of redeeming grace. That's the one central big idea that we're going after today. God is the God of redeeming grace. The question is, what exactly does that mean? I mean, what does it look like for God to be the God of redeeming grace? Well, Here's four ways that God shows himself to be the God of redeeming grace from this passage here in Genesis 6 through 9. You can jot these down in your notes as we go. Here's the first. God reveals himself to us. God reveals himself to us. So some context here as we get started. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He creates man in his image. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden against God, and from there a cascade of consequences begin to trickle down. So we get into chapter 4, and violence and murder enter the world for the first time when Cain kills his brother Abel, and a guy named Lamech kills another man because that man abused him. And so by the time we get to chapter 6, wickedness and immorality are running rampant. The people of God have been lured into immoral relationships with wicked people, which leads God then to this conclusion in Genesis 6 and verse 5. Take a look. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So verse 6 there says that the sin of the people grieved God to his heart. So that Hebrew word there for grieve, it, it communicates the same thing that a wife would feel when her husband betrays her. So just imagine a wife hearing the news that her husband has been unfaithful or that he's leaving her and the kids behind for someone else. Or, or even worse, imagine a bride on her wedding day standing at the altar by herself waiting for her husband to show up only to find that her groom has abandoned her so he can go and be with somebody else. And that's the feeling of emptiness and despair that washes over us. And, and this is what God feels about our sin. This deep sense of regret for what has happened. And so we read that and, and we start to process that and we think to ourselves, well, if he's God, then why didn't he just do something about it? I mean, if he's God, then couldn't he see this coming? Couldn't he have done something to stop it? And the problem here is not so much that God could not see this coming. The problem is that God is about to reset the entirety of his creation because that creation no longer reflects the glory of the one who created it. And that is what grieves God so deeply. But then we get to verse 8. Verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So just think here. Just think how amazing God's grace is. That in the midst of all of the rampant wickedness all across the earth, and knowing that man's heart is only evil all the time, God still shows his favor to one man. Isn't that what we need? I mean, isn't that what we need to be longing for? Are we not desperate for God's favor to be poured out upon us as we look at a world around us that is running rampant with sin and wickedness, as we look within our own hearts? Do we not need God to pour out his favor upon us? In our country alone, well over 100,000 babies are aborted every year. An alarming number of those abortions for no other reason other than that the child was not wanted by their parents. One of every seven people in our country lives in poverty. It's almost five million people nationwide in our country who either have nowhere to live or they live in conditions that put them at extreme risk of any number of other problems. Millions of people in our own country who have extremely limited access to food or basic necessities. Stats Canada reported just a year ago that just under 73,000 people identify themselves as being part of a same-sex couple, an increase of nearly 60% over the past decade. Human trafficking is on the rise, not only in faraway countries where we might expect it to happen, but it's increasingly becoming a plague here in our own country. And then we think about the political tensions in Canada and in the United States, in Syria, in North Korea, in the Middle East, in Russia, the violence and injustice and racism and corruption that have displaced millions and billions of people across the globe and created a refugee crisis like the world has never before seen. Not to mention the historical atrocities like the Holocaust and world wars and ethnic cleansings. I mean, if one thing should be clear to God's people, it is that the solutions will never be found in political ideologies or in social welfare. What our country needs, what our world needs, what we need is that in the midst of this rampant wickedness around us and the evil that is continually in us, we need God to pour out his favor on us. 
You don't need to watch the news every night. You just need to look around you every day. And that should drop us to our knees to plead with God to be merciful to us. So God shows his favor to Noah. You ever read through this story and just kind of stopped at this point and just wondered to yourself, why Noah? I mean, what is it that made Noah different from everyone else who died in the flood? Why did God give his favor to Noah? Was it because Noah was a spiritual person? Well, verse 9 goes on to say that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God. So did God come and save Noah because there was no sin in him? Well, that can't be the case because right after the flood is over, we read later in chapter 9 that we, we see the, the evil that was in Noah's heart just like everyone else. So the question is, what made Noah so different? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 7 says that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, Noah was saved by grace through faith. He's not saved because of his own righteousness or because of his own good works. He's saved because God pursued him and delivered him from his sin. And so when God now comes to Noah and says, Noah, you need to build this ark. Noah is not doing this to try and earn favor from God so that God will like him more. Noah is doing this because God has already revealed himself to him. And loved ones, we got to see this because this is so critical. This is so important to our understanding of our own relationship with God. Noah is responding to the God who has already revealed himself to him. So here in these early verses of Genesis 6, God has come to Noah, and it's like God has said to Noah, Noah, behold my glory. Behold my holiness. Behold my love and my justice and my wrath, and behold my compassion for my people. Noah responds by doing what God told him to do, and, and we got to see this is the way that it works for us as well. This is what God does for you and me as well. See, we don't go on missions trips and, and we don't serve in different places in the church and we don't drop money in the offering bag and do all of these things just so that God will like us more. See, as a believer in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit living in you, you have the promises of God and the presence of Jesus Christ within your life to give you all the assurance that you will ever need that you are always loved by God. See, we do these things. We, we go to the mission field and, and we serve in the church and we give to the mission through the church and we do all of these things and so many other things because God has come to us and he has said, Harvest Bible Chapel, behold my glory. Loved one, behold my glory. God comes to us and says, child of mine, behold my glory. Behold my holiness. Behold my justice and my wrath and my love and grace and mercy and compassion upon you. And the only acceptable response for us is to give our lives for this glorious God. I mean, God has shown us his glory, and this should propel us like it did for Noah to a lost and dying world around us with the message that God alone is worthy of all glory. I mean, we live in a city with thousands of people who, even as we speak right now at this very moment, are taking glory that should be given to God but it is being given to countless other trivialities and pointless pursuits. We live in a country that, for all the ways that God has blessed us and taken care of us and provided for us, is robbing God of glory that he alone deserves. 
There are countless numbers of religions across this city, across this country, and across this world. There are thousands of unreached people groups in the farthest corners of the globe who, though they can see the glory of God revealed in creation, are choosing to take that glory and give it to dead small g gods that will never be able to satisfy them. That's aside from all of the ways that you and I minimalize and trivialize God's glory in our own lives by longing for things that will never last beyond the moment. Friends, we need to see that there is a better way. The better way and the only way is to behold the glory of the living God and to lay our lives down for the spread of his glory across this city, across this country, and across this world. So that people will see the unmistakable glory of God and enter into relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. So how does God show us his redeeming grace? Well, the first way he does it, he reveals himself to us. But then this, number two, God will accomplish his purpose even when all hope seems lost. God will accomplish his purpose even when all hope seems lost. Take a look, chapter six, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So this flood is not only an unmistakable sign of God's judgment, but it is also an undeniable sign of God's commitment to cleanse the earth and make a new start. But there's one really big problem with what we just read. See, when you're reading through God's word and we're trying to trace the story of our Savior from start to finish like we're doing in this series, you have to read what God says here in light of what God has already said back in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, God promised that the seed of the woman would not only deliver us from our sin, but that he would one day come and both defeat and destroy Satan forever. But now in chapter 6, God says that he's going to wipe out every person from the face of the earth. So the looming question then is, what will happen to the seed of the woman? In other words, if all of mankind is about to be destroyed, then who will be the one to save us? Which is why it's so important for us to see here that God, in his grace, comes to Noah and sets him apart. See, we gotta, we got to understand here that Noah is not the best of the worst in a world gone bad. Okay? We, we need to see that because this passage is actually telling us that Noah is remarkably close to God in a world that has strayed remarkably far from God. And Noah, as the one who bears the image of God, is the one chosen by God through whom many will be saved. So because God chooses Noah, the seed of the woman then is preserved and makes a way thousands of years later for God to come to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And we know that Jesus would live a perfect life in which he never sinned. Though tempted, he would overcome. And he spends the duration of his ministry healing and helping and saving, showing that he alone is able to conquer the power of sin. And then he is betrayed and abandoned by those closest to him. He suffers greatly. He dies horribly, all for the sake of our sins, all for the sake of the wickedness that is within us and around us. I mean, just think about that for a second. All of our sins, all of this wickedness placed upon Jesus, Jesus dying in our place and bearing a punishment that he did not deserve, Jesus forsaken by the Father, the full wrath of God against the wickedness of our sins poured out on him, Jesus passing through the waters of God's judgment for our sake, then to be taken down from that cross and buried in a tomb and the tomb sealed shut by a stone that's rolled in front and everything looked like it was over. But just when you thought it was all lost, it was not because three days later that stone is rolled away and we see that Jesus has risen from the dead, that the sacrifice of his perfect life has fully satisfied God's justice against our sin and he has victory over sin and death forever so that all who believe in him will be given his righteousness. All who believe in him are given his blamelessness before the Father and will be delivered from God's wrath against our wickedness so great is this reality. So great is this gospel that just a little while later, Peter would stand before a crowd and he would preach to them and he would say, this Jesus that you killed has been raised up by God because death could not hold him down. So let everyone know, let everyone who can hear the sound of my voice right now know and understand that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both the Lord and the Christ. Loved ones, that is the power of redeeming grace. Just when you thought all hope was lost, God was still at work and he is still accomplishing his purposes. So let me ask you, if God can accomplish the greatest purpose of our salvation for his glory through a plan that looked completely doomed, can he then not much more than that take care of you and me in everything that we go through? Think about that for a minute. Think about your own life. Think about the things that we go through every single day. The doctor's report is discouraging. The family situation is alarming. The marriage is struggling. The friendship is faltering. The finances are disappearing. The doubt is lingering. The pain is heartbreaking. The heart is hardening. I mean, this is real life in one way or another for all of us. And so what do you do when that storm does not stop raging? I mean, let's be honest. We cannot even begin to fathom even a fraction of what Noah must have been thinking and feeling in this moment. Like, not just to build this massive ark, but then maybe to deal with all the ridicule from the people who saw him doing all this. Maybe how tempting it would have been for him just to pack it all up and walk away and think to himself, hey God, you know what? It's been 50 years since you told me it was going to rain and it hasn't rained yet. In 75 years, and God, it's been 90 years, and it hasn't rained yet. And why should I believe any of what you have said to me is true? And when life turns in a direction that we don't expect, and we go through a storm that we didn't see coming, why should we believe that any of what God has said to us is true? See, friends, you've got to wrestle this down to the ground. You have to come to an understanding in your heart and in your head about this question, because this is a game changer. And as Noah goes through, through this, I believe that it goes back to the fact that Noah knew 
God. And maybe you sit here right now and you think to yourself, well, that's not exactly a new revelation. He knew God. Yeah, but I'm not talking about the fact that he knew of God. I'm not talking that he knew that God was some distant deity who was out there and, and showed his power in all of creation by making everything that we see around us and, and then he just kind of goes away and he's not really concerned about the details that we go through through the course of our life. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the fact that Noah knew of God. I'm talking he knew God. That's why Noah can go 50 years and 75 years, 100 years, 120 years and keep doing the thing that God told him to do because he knew the God who came to him. He knew this God who made this covenant promise to him and said, Noah, I'm going to show my kindness to you and to your family by saving you from my judgment. He knew that even in spite of the evil within his own heart, even in spite of the effects of the evil that he could see all around him, he knew that God was kind and loving and compassionate to him so that even when he was in the middle of a circumstance that looked to be totally lost, he knew that God was still at work in that. See, loved ones, that is faith. That is biblical faith. That is God-honoring, Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered Christian faith. Faith is not just this one-time deal where you punch your ticket to heaven. Biblical, God-honoring faith is an ongoing belief that God is at work even when you can't see it. And that's what propels you to keep going and keep serving and keep trusting. And, And that belief is based on the reality that you have entered into this loving relationship with this all-knowing, covenant-keeping God. Listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter 2. Peter's talking to a group of Christians, a church who is going through trials and persevering in the trials. And, And Peter uses an example. He reaches all the way back to Noah. 2 Peter 2, verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This is our God. This is our glorious God. He knows how to rescue us. He knows how to take care of us, even when there are countless other things that he is doing at the same time to accomplish his perfect purposes. John Piper has said that at any given moment, God could be doing 10,000 different things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. But it doesn't take away from the fact that God is still sovereign over all of them. Which leads then to this next sign of God's redeeming grace. Number three, God always remembers his own. God always remembers his own. So Noah and his family now get into the ark and the rain begins to fall. Let's pick it up, chapter 7 and verse 17. Chapter 7, verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now, just to give you an idea of what that means, 
The highest mountain at this particular time was Mount Ararat, where the ark ended up settling after the floodwaters receded. Mount Ararat was about 17,000 feet high at its highest peak. Verse 20 says that there were 15 cubits of water above that highest point. So one cubit equals about 18 inches. That means that there was at least 22 and a half feet of water above the highest point of this 17,000 foot high mountain. That is the power of God's judgment. Because notice what happens next in verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. This is not the stuff of lullabies. God had patiently waited 120 years for people to repent of their wickedness. And now he unleashes his judgment in a way that all of the unrepentant end up dying in the flood. But you need to see that this entire narrative hinges on chapter 8 in verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God always remembers his own. It's the way we see it all through the Bible. Later in Genesis, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for their rebellion against God. And the Bible says, but God remembered Abraham. God sees Rachel's grief that she cannot have her own children. And the Bible says that God remembered Rachel. In Exodus, God hears the cries of his people for deliverance from slavery. And Exodus 2 says that God remembered his people. First Samuel, God sees Hannah's grief that she cannot have her own children. And First Samuel 1 says that God remembers Hannah. God always remembers his own. But the distressing part about this is that for as true as that is, we often forget God, don't we? And this is true for us no more than in those moments shortly after God has brought us through a storm. I mean, just try and put yourself in this story right now. Like, what is Noah thinking as he sees the rain falling and the water rising and the animals dying and the people yelling and the crowds perishing. What's he feeling? As he sees all of this wickedness around him, and to see all of that wickedness drowning in the darkness of a storm like nothing he had ever seen before. And then for this massive boat that he has spent all this time building, doing everything that God told him to do, and he is getting tossed up and down and up and down in the rage of God's judgment and maybe wondering if the God who just a short time before had promised to save him has now actually forgotten him. What's 
going through his mind. When I was a kid, I remember shopping at Kmart with my mom. Must have been about six or seven or eight years old at the time, and she was walking through the women's clothing section, which was problem number one for me. And, and that, was, that was back in the day when they had those really huge circular clothing racks. You remember those? Like so much bigger than what we see in stores today, like just this massive circle of a clothing rack and just chock full of clothes. And at some point along the way, I got separated from my mom. And so I'm looking everywhere for her and I can't find her because these clothing racks are so much bigger than I am. And before I know it, I, I just feel like I'm swimming in a sea of women's clothing, which is problem number 1A. <laughs> But then I'm, I'm at the point where this has been going on long enough and, and I'm thinking to myself, Mom, where are you? Like just imagine six, seven years old in the middle of a place that you're not familiar with. Like, Mom, where are you? And then it gets long enough to the point where does she even know that I'm gone? Like, I don't exactly hear search parties coming to rescue me right now. Like, does she even understand that I'm not with her anymore? Has she forgotten about me? It's that feeling of despair and fear and hopelessness that just washes over you and, and you're scared out of your mind. Like, we can't even begin to imagine what Noah is going through right now. Everything that he has seen and hearing and processing, but we know a little bit of what it feels like, don't we? Like, God, I know that you've promised that you will never leave me nor forsake me. God, I know that you've said that your grace will always be sufficient for me. And, and Jesus, I know that you have promised me that there is nothing and there is no one that will ever be able to snatch me out of your hand. I know all of these things are true, but isn't it also true that we go through physical storms and we go through emotional storms and sometimes we go through desperately deep spiritual storms within our life and we wonder, God, I know that you've said all of these things are true, but I feel right now like I'm just getting tossed all over the place and I'm not sure if you have forgotten me. And isn't that why we have so much fear within our life? Isn't that why we have so much anxiety and so much worry and so much doubt that overtakes us sometimes? I want you to see what happens next here in Genesis 8 because what happens for Noah is what needs to happen for us. It's what brings all of this together. Look ahead now to chapter 8, verse 18. Chapter 8, verse 18. So the rain has stopped, the ground is dry. Chapter 8, verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again, neither will I ever again, strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the storm stops, the earth dries, and the first thing that Noah does as he gets off the boat, he offers a sacrifice. Here's how it comes together. The right response to your worry and to your fear and to your anxiety and to your doubt and to your confusion is not to white-knuckle through it the right response is to worship your way through it. 
The response is to come before God and say, God, you are sovereign over my life. God, you are sovereign over this storm in my life. God, you can use even the hardest things that I'm going through to accomplish your purpose within my life. God, you are good and you are loving and you are faithful and you are kind. You are faithful to every promise that you have ever made. God, you always remember your people, so I will worship you. The only thing that will give you security in the storm is to turn to the one who is sovereign over the storm. See, our hope, listen, this is so important. Our hope is not in our ability to remember God. Our hope is in the reality that God remembers us. Our hope is in the reality that God never forgets his people. And in that final day, when God, in his perfect holiness, unleashes his judgment one final time on unrepentant humanity, he will most certainly remember all of those who belong to him. Listen, friends, God has not forgotten you, and God will not forget you, which leads us then to this one final point, number four. God's grace leads to new beginnings. God's grace leads to new beginnings. So as Noah and his family exit the ark, God tells them at least three times to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the same command that God gave to Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. But now God has cleansed the earth in his judgment. He has started over and he gives the same command again to Noah and his family. So let's skip down now to chapter 9 and verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8 says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So notice here, God establishes this covenant with Noah completely on his own initiative. So he knows, God knows that the heart of man is, is continually evil and sinful and he still promises, even in the midst of that, to extend his love and his grace and his mercy to his people. Parents, maybe you've read the Jesus Storybook Bible to your kids. It's a great resource for parents with young kids. And Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of that book, has a phenomenal way of explaining a covenant in this book. She says that a covenant is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Just let that sink in for a second. Just let that wash over you. This is how God loves you. This is what God was expressing to know. It's what God expresses to us at the cross. A never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. 
which when you think about it, is just magnified all the more when we get to the next section in chapter 9 and we see that evil and wickedness is still on the earth. And we ask ourselves, well, why? Like, what was the whole point of this then? If all of the evil and wickedness is still on the earth after the flood, then why would God go to such great extent and such great lengths to destroy the earth by a flood to abolish the one thing that still ends up remaining after the flood happens? I mean, what's going on here? Why is this happening? It's happening because evil and wickedness are still within us. So what's happening here? What's happening is that God is signaling that he is committed to dealing with his creation with redeeming grace. One of the most powerful signs that we see of that is this rainbow in the clouds. This is where we should start to see the hints of Jesus in the story of Noah. So in the ancient Near East, the one who initiated the covenant would offer something physical to symbolize their commitment to the covenant. And that's why when you read through the Bible, you sometimes find people either exchanging sandals or dividing animals or signing pledges. And so as the initiator of this covenant, God puts his bow in the clouds. Now, originally, this bow was not understood to be a rainbow, though it could mean that. It was first understood to be a weapon of war. But God now places this bow in the clouds as an overarching sign that he has made a way to end hostility and bring peace to all of those who will receive his provision. I mean, really, it's a sign that even though evil and wickedness will remain in the earth after the flood, God now has laid down his weapon of war in the heavens and he is offering grace to all who will turn to him. So we're... God showed that to Noah in an absolutely amazing way. God now shows that to us in Christ in an even greater way. So notice this. Noah was the one chosen by God through whom God would save some. God uses Noah to provide a new beginning for his creation, a beginning that would cleanse the earth of wickedness. Noah was a righteous man and he walked with God. Does that mean Noah was perfect? No, of course it doesn't. Noah still stood in need of God's redeeming grace, which is why Noah's life now begins to point us so clearly to Jesus. Because in an even greater way, Jesus is the one sent by the Father through whom God would save all who turn away from their wickedness in repentance and faith. God sent Jesus to give us a completely new beginning with hearts that are cleansed from sin. Noah, though righteous before God, was still a sinful man. But Jesus was perfect before his Father and was sinless. He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as the ark did for Noah, Jesus shields us from the wrath of God and he will safely deliver us through the deep and dark waters of God's judgment. But you got to see, just like on the ark, there's only one door. It's only one way to receive the gift of God's grace and mercy and be delivered from his judgment. And Jesus says in John 10 verse 9 that he is the door and anyone who enters by him, he will be saved. The problem is that just as the Lord himself closes the door on the ark and shuts Noah and his family in, there's coming a day when the Lord will close the door of this opportunity to receive this grace. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the people in Noah's day did not see the judgment coming until it was already on them, and by that point, it was too late. Which is exactly why the mission is so urgent for all of us. As Noah did, we must see that there is no time to waste in declaring the message of coming judgment and God's redeeming grace. So I want to leave you this morning with two important questions. 
Number one, have you turned to Jesus Christ to be saved from the judgment of God? Have you turned to Jesus Christ to be saved from the judgment of God? I mean, part of the power of this real-life account in Noah's life is that it teaches us that we are not the righteous ones who don't need to be saved, but we are the unrighteous ones on the outside of the ark who need saving, that a gracious God has made a way for us to be saved. Perhaps you're seeing for the very first time in your life that you need to step into the security that Jesus Christ alone can give you. Right now, God, in his redeeming grace, and because he loves you so much, can give you a new beginning if you will turn away from your sin and trust in him. Have you turned to Jesus Christ to be saved from the judgment of God? And then question number two, for those of us who have already turned to Jesus, do we sense the urgency of the mission before us? Do we sense the urgency of the mission before us? See, we need to check our own hearts in this. What do we feel as we look around us and we see the rain falling and the waters rising and so many people around us dying in their sin? Whether it's our city or your workplace or your classroom or your neighborhood or your very own family. Time is short and the need is great and God is good. God is good and he is loving and he is gracious towards his creation and he offers redeeming grace to all who will trust in him.